Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Susanna Constantine, and this is my wardrobe malfunction. Welcome to New Friends, and thanks so much to those who joined us last week for our first episode of Season 9 with the fabulous Denise Welsh. We've had such wonderful feedback, which is so lovely to hear. If you really enjoyed it, please do leave us a rating and a review, as apparently it makes a difference, though no one's ever explained what that difference actually is. Anyway, a bit later on, you'll hear another track from our house band duo's new album, Destino. But now on to this week's special guest. You'll probably have seen him trekking through inhospitable terrain and wondered how the hell he's going to get out of it in one piece. Well, he did, and he's even had time to write a new book called Escape from Kabul, though not about his escape in this instance. It's the explorer and best-selling author, Leveson Wood. So, let's grab the handles, open my wardrobe doors, and find out what's inside. Today, I am absolutely thrilled to be speaking to world-renowned explorer, best-selling author, photographer, and former British paratrooper, Leveson Woods. How are you? Hello there. I'm very well, thank you. It's so nice to see you. I've been watch- I have watched all your documentaries um, when they came out, and, uh, and then I've re-watched some of them, but I hadn't seen Arabia before, uh. and I watched, kind of binged watched that, and it was just fascinating. And I know we should be talking about clothes, but... There's so much more to be talking about. But just let's start with your name, Leveson. It's such a great name. Where did that come from? Well, it's actually my father's name. He's Leveson Wood, and his dad was Leveson Wood, and his dad and his dad. So I'm actually the fifth Leveson Wood in, in my family line. But where did it come from originally? Well, originally, um, I think it was back in the sort of mid-19th century, um, there was a chap called... Lord Leveson Gower, he, he was the Earl of Shrewsbury, I believe, or, or something like that. And, and it was the the um, the fashion of the day, if you were a peasant farmer, to name your kids after the local aristocrat. So my family, sadly, they don't come from any um, aristocratic stock, but um, the family name has certainly stuck, yeah. It is weird that, because I, I wrote, um, I've written a, a book, and um, I was looking back at all that, and, and all these memories came flooding back, and one of them was a nanny from a family, and she was called Nanny Manners, which wasn't her name. She took the name of her family, and this is only 25 years ago. Yeah. I mean, what's, very... what's, what's funny, my dad's been nagging me for grandchildren for a very long time and to carry on that family name, but since I've been on the telly, I've had about 50 people get in touch saying they've named their kids Levison. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, goodness. At least there are a few next generation scampering around. And you, have, you had quite a kind of, um, for want of a different word, a better word, macho upbringing, because your dad was in the army, wasn't he? And he was, yeah. Was he quite a tough man? Was he? He was. I mean, he, he's... Um... I mean, he's, he's mellowed in his old age, <laughs> but he, uh, no, he was in the reserves and, you know, he grew up from very, very working class stock and my granddad was in the army. So, um, so that was very much a big part of my upbringing and, um, and consciousness growing up. I kind of knew from the, about the age of 10 that I was going to become yeah. a soldier. And, um, although I think growing up in, you know, a pretty, pretty rough part of Stoke-on-Trent was, was probably one of the reasons I wanted to go and see the world and um, see what was beyond the confines of North Staffordshire. And do you think, I mean, how much influence did your mum have on you? Oh, a lot. I mean, she um, she was a primary school teacher, so I think the value of education was, was, was always part of my 
my my childhood. My dad was a he was a geology teacher in high school, and so um, they both both had a huge bearing on on my outlook. But certainly, growing up in in and around education, that that was you know the value of reading. So from a very young age, I was fascinated by history and geography and other cultures um, purely because there were always books lying around, and um, mm. and uh, even you know even though. We could, you know, rarely afford to go on big exotic family holidays. You know, there was always that inspiration was lying around from from stories and uh, other people's books. But you did go to Greece, didn't you? Well, that was one of your first. Yeah, yeah, no, we did. I mean, they 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 sort of, you know, they cobbled together a few quid and, and ensured that I had a, at least a, an insight into the big wide world. And um, I think uh that that was really where my journey began it was just like little forays and adventures and uh started with you know camping holidays in scotland and, and wales and then we did venture further afield but uh but yeah now i was always fascinated by different ways of life and um and seeing seeing what was over the next sort of horizon really so you were always were you always kind of quite outward bound as a teenager like happier to stay in a tent than in a house. Oh yes, yes. Now, you know, sort of as a kid, we'd go on these little family holidays to, like I say, Wales, and my dad was always in, insistent that we'd go and explore the local castles and national trust sort of places and things like that. So I, I love being outside, and I, I was really, very lucky in, in many ways to grow up on the edge of the Peak District because um, very easy to go for a little walk, and I did things like the Duke of Edinburgh's award and. Um, and that and that you know those early expeditions really sort of set the tone for for later on. But you know when I was a teenager, I, I, we were always off scampering around the woods and um, out camping and things like that. Were you a naughty teenager in a typical naughty teenager way, or were you just physically um, courageous, or did you kind of? Oh no, I was very much pissed. a naughty teenager. I was always getting in trouble. Um, do you get pissed and sniff glue, or were you just kind of skinning, skinning I rabbits? I stayed away from the glue, thankfully. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, I was always getting in trouble. I mean, there were, there were a couple of a couple of moments as a kid that I, I got in got in plenty of mischief. But um, yeah, thankfully, I was always pretty good at school, so I managed to get yeah. away with it. It's interesting, isn't it? Because we we we've got three kids, and we when our eldest kid was not was eight, we moved out of London. And specifically because, well, I grew up in the countryside and my husband grew up in the countryside, but it gives you, I, I, it's kind of what you learn from nature is so valuable. And my personal opinion is that it's more valuable than living in an urban environment. If and when you have kids, um, would you want them to grow up in the countryside? Definitely. I mean, yeah. the, the value of nature is, it can't be overstated. I mean, it's something I've, having lived in London now for the best part of 12 years, it's it's something I very much crave, you know, growing up in, in the countryside, just being outside, mm. being in, near to the woods, and uh, it, it just has a whole bearing on your, not just your personality, but your your, your mental health. And, and I, I think there's so, and, and, you know, whilst I live in London, I'm always trying to escape it and going, going mm. off on adventures. And I think a lot of that is just craving um, the natural world. And um, you know, I think living in a city is, it's not a very natural way of mm. life, really. And, and I've certainly come to appreciate that more and more the older I get. So, yeah, no, I, I, I think if, um, if when I do have a, a family, it would certainly, I'd like to think mm. it would, it would be not in, in central London, yeah. Why do you live in London? I mean, to be honest, it's it's been very convenient for me the last the last sort of few years. Whilst um, whilst I've been doing a lot of travelling, it's quite nice to just fly, you know, land at Heathrow or Gatwick, and then be be back at home in forty five minutes rather than having to then do a two hour commute down to wherever Devon or Dorset. Okay, can I just tell you something? Go on. All right, we live in Sussex. Yeah. All right, we look out of our house. So it's kind of, we did this room, and unfortunately it's quite bright. I don't know if you can see. It's a very nice room as well. <laughs> it's a nice room, isn't it? Okay. Lovely. So look at that view. You can't yeah, see that yeah. crazy. No, that is And <laughs> we are four minutes from a train station, all right, and 10 minutes from Gatwick. Yeah, that's so, good. That is absolute <laughs> bollocks that you have. It's more yeah, but look at this. I'm gonna show you. I'm gonna show you. I've got a shop right here. Where's your where's your shop? There's there's the river. Literally two okay. 
<laughs> okay, all right, you win on that one. <laughs> but no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go and find some trees, don't worry. So um, your, who are your inspirations? I presume living, David Livingstone and not David Bowie. Who, who are your... <laughs> Um, you know what? One of the biggest inspirations. Um, it, it, I mean, I have to say, it's a bit of a cliche, but it is that those sort of explorers of yesteryear with lots of big hairy moustaches and things like that. Um, you know, Livingston, Scott, Shackleton, all all of the yeah. classics of um, Victorian and early twentieth century exploration. Really, um, Richard yeah. Burton actually was my 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 firm favourite. Um, he was a he was a sort of classic. Victorian explorer, but but very much a, a polymath. I mean, he spoke twenty seven languages. Um, oh he translated the Kama Sutra into English. He got into all sorts of trouble. I mean, he was he was out as a as a British sort of Victorian political officer and soldier. He was sort of uh, out there uh, exploring the opium dens of of India and off in search of the source of the Nile. And uh, yeah, no, he he was very much a, a kind of one of these archetypal heroes that I kind of looked up to as a, as a kid and read all about and Wilfred Thesiger and Lawrence of Arabia um, and and those, you know those are the people that really inspired me to go and I thought you know what if they can do it then what, what's stopping me really? I didn't realise that he had done so much Burton because I thought it was Speak who'd found actually found well he did I mean that one is, is steeped in controversy because of course Burton um, and Speak were on the journey together and um Burton yeah. was laid up with malaria and Speak went and did a, he did a bit of a turn on him and went, he said, I'm just going to go gonna go and have a quick look for the source of the Nile. And, and then he found Lake Victoria and then decided to bugger off back to the UK and claim it for his own whilst leaving Paul Burton in bed. So, <laughs> Okay, so that's... Yeah. But they have been on the journey for a very long time together. So, um, but out of the two, I think Burton's my favourite. But it is extraordinary. It's... it's... So you say, you know, you've got your, your documentary series, which is Walking the Nile, and you were the first person to do that, which is astonishing, absolutely astonishing. But it's kind of like the sort of thing you think, well, someone must have done that before. And you did that, what, how many, like, uh, nine uh, years, years ago? Nine years ago now, yeah. yeah 20, started in 2013, so yeah. So... Was that because of kind of warring factions? Why, why had it not been? Well, the Nile, you know, the Nile's, it's, well, one, it's a very long river. It goes through lots of um, quite difficult countries and terrains. Um, and then up until, you know, the 20th century, um, it was just, there was no real need to, to travel its length either on foot or, or indeed by boats. I mean, there's all the cataracts, the waterfalls, which meant, meant it was unnavigable anyway yeah so most people would uh, if they were going in search of the source of it they kind of roughly knew it was somewhere in central africa so people would take a, a boat down to um, east africa and then cut inland to try and find it uh, into what you know through places like tanzania and uganda um you know there, there, were, there were forays going up the nile through places like sudan but south sudan has uh, hasn't always been and even to this day is um a very lawless and, and dangerous and mm. difficult place. And and until the invention of anti-malarials, most people, you know, on these journeys of two, three years would just drop dead. Um, mm. And then throughout most of the 20th century, the place has been in, you know, in civil war. So it's just been very, very difficult for people to get through. So, um, and even when I do it, you know, it did it, it was, it was, it was um, very, very tricky. And I mean, there was civil wars happening then. So, uh, so yeah, no, it's, it, it was an amazing journey to be a part of. And it, and it sort mm. of, um, enabled me I mean I had no idea whether it would be successful or a failure and certainly had no idea that it would gain the traction that it did in terms of having a tv series and being able to write a book about it that was that was never really the intention it was mm. just going to do a, do a whopping great journey and um feel very luck, lucky that it it sort of paid off from that front and has enabled me to to carry on doing all sorts of different journeys afterwards but did you literally just wait you left the art because you were in the paratroopers and you got to the position of captain and then decided to leave. Hmm. And then did you just kind of wake up and think, hmm, okay, am I going to go and get the newspaper? No, actually, I'm going to go and walk the night. <laughs> How did you decide to do that? Well, I needed some sort of uh, gainful employment. So I, you know, I was, I was interested in photography and writing anyway. I studied history at university. And... Uh, you know, I, I, you know, fancied myself as a bit of a, a writer and a photographer. I always loved travel, of course, and um, mm. I've, I've been in far too many gap years to count. But 
Um, I figured that now was the time to go and really do something and uh, I suppose make a name for myself. I was in my late 20s, early 30s and um, and that was an opportunity to take some big risks. So I, I ended up, when I left the, the Paras, um, me and another mate from the army, we set up a, a sort of guiding expedition company. So we were taking people on quite wild expeditions. Um, uh, you know, places that we, we went horse riding to the source of the Oxus River in Afghanistan. We went camel riding across the Sahara. We even took somebody skiing on the Iran-Iraq border. Um, and it wasn't long before <laughs> lots of journalists got in touch and we had all the big production houses and the channels calling up. So oh, can you can you smuggle us into Syria or whatever? So it, one thing led to another. It took about three years of of doing this and, and using that as a vehicle to do my own photography. And, I, you know, I was writing articles for newspapers and doing the odd bit for Lonely Planet and things like that. So it was a, it wasn't quite as simple as wake up and walk the Nile. There was there was a bit of a five year <laughs> five year backstory to it. But but really, I knew that at some point I'd have to go and do my own big trip in order to, I suppose, uh, plant that flag, really. And, and the Nile was always a, a river that I'd been interested in. I'd, I'd read all about it. Um, and so I thought now is the time, go and, go and do it. Yeah. Mm. What kind of preparation do you have to do for an expedition like that? I mean, in terms of navigate, I mean, how much do you, how much of the route do you work out? Do you go to countries before to find? No, it was really, you didn't do a recce, no. It was, I mean, you, no. it, it was more, I mean, it was about 18 months of just trying, trying to fundraise, really. That was the hardest bit, was getting yeah. the cash together. Um, obviously, you need to do a bit of homework in terms of figuring out uh, what paperwork and visas and permits you need that's all the boring bits but then you do need an understanding of the local culture and uh, languages and things but I think the best investment you can have is, is getting a good guide and, and that for mm. me was was a really important part of it was making sure that whoever I was with was somebody I could trust and get along with because you're, you're, you're in each other's pockets literally for, for weeks if not months on end and if you don't get on with somebody or if you don't trust them then it's not going to work so a lot of it was finding decent guides to help me get through. How do you go about that? Um, I mean, by that stage, I'd, you know, you, you accrue a sort of a, a quite a wide network of uh, friends and acquaintances from the, particularly from the army, who then go on to do jobs that might be in the UN or as journalists or as security advisors. So it's just a case of sort of casting the net and yeah. um, usually word of mouth referrals. saying, oh, you know, my, my mate's taxi driver's cousin is, you know, knows this area like the back of his hand. And, and um, as a result, you end up walking with some, this bloke for four months. <laughs> the, the one I remember of one of your guides was um, in Central America. I can't remember which. Oh, Alberto. Which, yeah, he's a, he's a And he guy. had no experience. He'd done nothing. And he was a little roly-poly fella. And off he went. I mean, he was incredible. He, he's an amazing guy. We were still best of friends. And um, whenever I go to Mexico, I see him. But uh, no, I mean, he, you know, being a, when I say the word guide, it's not necessarily someone who can... Uh, read a map or needs to you know use a compass it's just somebody who is charming enough to get you out of trouble whenever mm. it comes along and that's quite often on these trips and so yeah. Alberto whilst he hadn't really walked anywhere he, he's one of the most charming blokes I've ever met and uh, he got us out of lots of very close scrapes. So what would you do what if let's say you were kind of slapped up against a wall with a gun at the back of your head how would you get out of that? Well, I mean, that actually happened to me in South Sudan. We were, of course, this was, this yeah. was before I walked the Nile. I had been there before, and uh, we were doing a pioneering a rafting trip down down the River Nile, and um, we we had got all the paperwork in place, but uh, nobody somehow the word hadn't got down to the local militia groups who were, you know, in that particular area. So after five fairly uneventful days, we were floating down the river <clears throat> into the capital Juba. And uh, just as we were, I don't know, we were probably only a, a sort of few hours away, um, we saw this movement on the, the, the riverbanks and there were all these blokes running alongside shouting and then suddenly somebody started opening fire. They were firing warning shots over our heads and, um, you know, these guys were um, were clearly meant business, but we couldn't really stop because we were in the middle of a kind of fast-flowing river with, with, with rocks and rapids. And um, next thing you know, it was like a scene out of Indiana Jones when all these guys are chasing after us in dugout canoes with spears and things. And, um, and they eventually caught up with us, dragged us over to the one side, lined us up against the, you know, the, the riverbank and AK-47s 
in the back of our heads. And it's it's times like that that you do have to sort of um, think quickly on your feet. And, and one piece of advice that I'd always been given whenever traveling in um, African war zones is always carry a pack of cigarettes because, you know, they whilst, um, you know, I'm not a smoker, it turns out that most of these gunmen do like a cigarette. And so I, I sort of looked at this guy and pulled out a cigarette and offered him a fag and you could see the cogs turning. He's like, what do I want more? Do I want to shoot you in the head or do I want a cigarette? And he, of course, he could have had both, but the moment you make <laughs> eye contact, you, you sort of establish a bit of a rapport and he sort of snuck one himself and then all of his mates wanted one. And before you know it, we're all laughing and joking and we're all best friends. So uh, there are and have been lots of moments like that where you just have to sort of uh, keep people on a human level and, and not <clears throat> not let emotions run away, really. It's just kind of, yeah, just eye contact. And a big smile sometimes is all it takes. I mean, having been in um, in the military, all that training, and then you went to Afghanistan, Burundi, Malawi, that must have helped. That must have created a foundation for you, a safety foundation yeah. to do these more extreme It does. Tricks. It gives you um, a sense of, a real appreciation of, of what real risk is, because whilst mm. it's it's all too easy to get very nervous being around people with guns and war zones and things. Actually, the vast majority of people aren't out to do any harm there. You know, people do tend to look after each other. And, um, and it's, I think it's having a sense of optimism really is, is, yeah. is what helps and um, keeping everything in perspective and understanding the real risks. Cause often it's not, it's not the gunmen or the. It's probably or, some pissed driver. Well, usually it? some... it's car accidents. Yeah. And I've, had, I've had a yeah. fair share of those as well. And, and that's the real risk. And so it's all well and good worrying about the, um, being eaten by a crocodile, but if you're if you're happy to then jump in a taxi that with somebody who's had a few too many whiskeys, then yeah. you're kind of missing the point. So your book, your you've you've written this new book, Escape from Kabul, about the um, eva coalition's evacuation. Mm. Why did you decide to do that? Uh, well, let me just wind that back. How long were you in Afghanistan for? So <clears throat> I mean, I've been to Afghanistan. What is it? Four times, I suppose, over the years maybe five, um, but only once with the army. I was there in 2008 okay. on a tour with, with uh, the Parachute Regiment. We were fighting in Helmand and Kandahar. Um, but I'd been back a few times since, you know, I'd, like I say, I was out there trying to pioneer tourism in the Northeast. Um, mm. And then on my Himalayas expedition, I walked across mm. um, the Wakhan Corridor. So I, there was a real affinity for me to the country. Um, and I've always you know, been looked after very well there. And I've got a lot of very good Afghan friends. So when it all kicked off in August 2021, um, it was just a real sense of sadness and, and sort of a bit of shame, actually, that, that we'd let it come to this. And, and the fact that we'd, I suppose, in many ways, left the place no better than um, it started 20 years before. So, um, and at the time, there was a lot of, you know, not only that that feeling and uh, amongst the veteran community of being let down, but a bit of an optimism because uh, our, our colleagues in the form of interpreters and um, Afghans that had served alongside us, obviously they were in, in grave danger at the time from uh, reprisals from the Taliban. And it was actually, whilst the government were mainly on holiday, um, you know, and then took them a long time to sort of bother to do anything about it. Uh, it was actually the veteran community who were all scrambling, as well as the military who were sent out there to to go and um, help. You know, the veteran community really clubbed together to help get their former comrades out. And that that really, I thought, it was very inspiring. Um, and so I wanted to, to write a book as a bit of a tribute to all, all the people that played mm. a part in that um, and tell the stories of, of, of the Afghans themselves. And so I spent... I mean, it was in many ways, in September last year, I um, talked about motorcycle accidents. I, I came, off a, came off a bike in Greece and broke my leg, which gave me the perfect <laughs> opportunity to sit down and write this book. Mm. Um, so I interviewed lots of people, the soldiers of two para, civil servants, um, loads of Afghans, people who did escape, people who didn't, um, politicians. I interviewed Dominic Raab, Ben Wallace, Johnny Mercer. And so this book really is 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 the sort of um, the product of, of of all of those interviews, and um, it was really really interesting to to sort of get all these different perspectives on on this one truth and provide a bit of a historical account um, of of what happened. Yeah. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. 
At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It is the most amazing country. I mean, I don't, I don't know it so well, but I spent a, a lot of time in Pakistan and which is a country I really love, and I love the people. Um, And we went up into the Northern Territories, sort of up to the Dosai Plain. I can't remember if you walked across the Dosai Plain. I mean, it was just extraordinary. And then we went then back down to Chishran, and I remember we met um, Masood before he was um, killed. And just those people are they have such nobility and such a grace and such a deep sense of history and their country i think i think it's one of the most extraordinary places in the world and you that's kind of your next um documentary isn't it walking the length of the border between pakistan and india yeah well i did that in yeah last summer um yeah. all the way from from lay um in ladakh you know, through Kashmir, Punjab, and then up the Pakistan side up to Skardu, Skardu, and, and Skardu, it was yeah. remarkable, remarkable, beautiful scenery, and the people there are fantastic. And um, yeah. yeah, that was a film for Discovery Channel. So, yeah. But it's I heard because we went we went to Skardu, and we went to Gilgit, and we went to Hunza, and um, but and this was gosh, it was a long time ago. This must have been about thirty five years ago. So almost before you were born and it was from what I understand such a different place because it's gone through this evolution of being a backwater and then the Taliban and it's kind of becoming quite a a place for tourism and you know the my Pakistani friends are sort of like so proud of the fact that in Hunza there's a really nice hotel and I'm you know Mm. typical we don't live there and you know, progress is fantastic for them, but we have I have this romantic ideal of, well, Hunza of is, how it yeah, was. It was sort of the Shangri-La, wasn't it? I mean, it's, it's yeah. one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen. And uh, I guess at the moment you have a road in there, then it, everything changes. I mean, mm. for, for the, the vast majority of its history, it's been totally isolated during the, particularly during the winter. There was just no way mm. in or out. And um and now things have changed. I think not, not just with tourism, but you know the, the Chinese are building all these roads there and the access routes and things like that. So that mm. it is changing a bit. So um, okay, Levison, we need to talk about clothes. <laughs> um. I just wear khaki. I mean, it's not that. It's, it's pretty straightforward. <laughs> I mean, how do you know what to take? What do you? Okay, so. Let's think. So when you were in doing the, the Arabian Peninsula in Lebanon, it got sodding cold and it you is, were completely <laughs> ill-prepared. And then, but most of the places you've been to so far, well, actually, no, not the Himalayas, but what, what do you put in your rucksack? It's such a basic question. Obviously, it does depend a little bit on, on the environment and, uh, you know, you have to be prepared to a certain degree. But I my rule of thumb is if, if it's not something you use every day, then it does, just doesn't get packed because I, my, I just only carry one rucksack and that's, that's got to carry everything, unless I'm doing a technical thing. But for the most part, it's just a, a day sack. So you've got to be really sparing with what you put in there. So it's, it's, it's my basics, you know, it's my sort of walking trousers, uh, um, a shirt, I mean, a jacket. I mean, I do, I'll, I'll be honest, I do quite like um, the idea of, practical fashion I mean I've, I've been involved with a few brands which have been kind enough to let me design my own clothes and I've designed jackets and shoes for different companies and it's been it's been a really fun um experience for my part because I've got the practical uh, experience of knowing what actually works in these places and, and so I've been able to um 
hopefully impart some of that into into the world of fashion in my own little way but it's it's i you know i like my sort of khaki jackets you know a lot of it is inspired by military wear and um something that is actually robust and is not just going to tear on the first barbed wire fence that you try and jump over have you taken any tips from the victorians or has tech wear evolved so far now that is totally impractical i don't really know oh, oh that. that's good to hear so you're not wearing you wear boxer shorts and not under armor then uh more or less i mean okay i might wear under armor but but really i mean the i'm, I'm not a big fan of um i think just pure purely because a lot of the tech wear it's not as durable as they make out and actually a good old fashion sort of canvas um jacket it is it's usually a lot better frankly so and it looks a bit cooler as well doesn't it <laughs> well that's i think that is a side of you there's a bit of you Levinson, if you're honest it, that's quite vain i mean there has to be you know you pretend not to give a shit but i'm pretty sure that there well, is a bit of vanity a bright, bright blue walking jacket isn't it? Like, no <laughs> <laughs> so i mean clothes clothing really must be the least important Important in a way because, like you say, you just you just rotate or just wear the same thing. Or just every pick day, stuff up it? along the way. I mean, you know, I quite yeah. If, you, if you're traveling through a country where there's people wear a certain type of clothing, it's for a reason usually, and usually yeah. a practical reason. And in Arabia, if I was going across the desert, then you know, I'd pick up a shower kameez or um, or yeah. something appropriate for the for that environment, and because uh, uh, it works. And um, and and you know, if I, there's plenty of places where you don't want to stand out necessarily, and it's better to blend in and um yeah, of course uh you know going through yemen you kind of have to dress dress like a yemeni otherwise you're going to attract yeah. a bit of bit of bit of trouble so um that that's been my mantra throughout all of my journeys yeah and so what do you take do you take a wash bag yeah no, i'll take a, i'll take a wash bag and I'll, ta I'll take the basics um i mean one one item that i do always try and take is a is a one at least one clean white linen shirt which is my sort of staple because um, I've often found that even in the deserts or the jungles or uh, wherever, you, you never know who you're going to bump into. And uh, it's quite handy to have one item of clean clothing that you can look smart. And often it's, you might get dragged in off a police checkpoint to go and have, uh, you know, go and meet the, the local governor. Or, you know, in Uganda, I was asked, invited to go for a dinner with the British ambassador. Or in Egypt, when I finished my Nile journey, you know, there was a whole press conference waiting for me at the end. So you can so it's there were things like that or, or in the Himalayas you know I was invited to go and meet the Dalai Lama so sometimes Amazing. the jungle rags just won't do so the white linen shirt is my is my staple item of luxury I think but you can't have had a day pack in the Himalayas on your trek yeah, yeah no, for the most part yeah yeah so how did you stay warm at night? I mean, in the day you're walking so you're you're keeping yourself well warm I had a down jacket that was my that was my one bit of you know, warm kit was a down jacket and then for the most part you know i was staying with local families along the way okay and then um headwear would it be a hat or sunglasses if you um, could choose one no i did i mean choose one if you're only allowed one then probably a hat because you know mm. i'm sort of i think keeping the sun over your head is very important but i i do try you know i do actually wear sunglasses because i i don't want to don't want to go blind too early. <laughs> mm. Which sunglass? Which sunglasses? Um, I'm a I'm a bit of a Ray Ban stalwart to be honest. I sort of okay. Yeah, go for the old Wayfarer classics. Yeah, always polarized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, how many pairs of boots did you get through, for example, walking the length of the Nile? Well, you know what? I actually only wore one pair of boots <gasps> for eight months, and then some silly chap who was a professional uh, podiatrist recommended that when I got to Egypt I should change my boots for some trainers because I'd be mainly walking along roads and I I listened to the expert you see and uh, <laughs> it resulted in some of the most horrific blisters I'd have ever mm. had I should have stuck to my good old-fashioned army walking boots but yeah no I mean if you've got some good boots then stick to them you know it's, it's whatever yeah. makes you comfortable I'm not I'm not too prescriptive when it comes to clothing it's just like what if it works it works you know yeah and do, do you think generally is it leather boots or yeah, boots that work the best. I've got some good leather boots. They tend to work. Although there is, there are some really good brands that are coming out with um, more sustainable fabrics and things like that now that that, yeah. are, that are just as good for sure. Okay, and do you? I mean, do you use any apps? Um, what for, for navigation? For navigation. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, 
for yeah, I mean, generally, you, you know, Google Earth has it has definitely got its benefits over paper maps rather than carrying, uh, you know, lots of maps that fill up your rucksack. I mean, you've got it all mm. at the tip of your fingers. Um, mm. So so yeah, actually, you know, Google Google Maps does it has been very helpful over the years. Yeah. yeah. I can imagine. And do you? How do you prepare physically? Do you kind of get fit, or do you just allow yourself to get fit along the journey? I think acclimatization is probably the most important thing because yeah. um, if you're going to go and walk for nine months, actually, there's not much preparation you can. You know, you're not going to walk yeah. for an extra two months just for the sake of it. I think for me, it was just about taking it easy the first few weeks, um, getting used to the altitude, getting used to the heat. Um, and breaking yourself in easily. I'd start by walking five miles per day or 10 miles per day and then work it up. And then by the end, I was, you know, I think the most I've done in one day is probably about 65 miles, which is, Christ. wouldn't recommend it, but definitely a long way. That is a hell of a long way. And then do you have on these trips, do you, is the one thing like a sort of comfort blanket that you would never be without? in any given environment? Um, probably that white linen shirt, really, just because you never know when it's going to come in handy. Um, I mean, I do always, you know, I am a passionate photographer, so I'll always have my Leica camera with me because that that gives me, it, it, in many ways, it is a comfort blanket because everybody likes having their photograph taken and uh, and actually it, it, it's a conversation starter and, and especially in little villages in the, you know, in the Hindu Kush mountains um, or, or anywhere for that matter there is that that sense of connection because uh, you can take a photo of the kids and show them and they they love it and they all want their photo taken and and that i i found is is a nice um nice way to sort of meet with with local people and sort of ingratiate yourself into the local community mm, and i always absolutely. try and i mean sometimes you can carry a polaroid or actually in this day and age you don't need to because i can i can send the send the image straight from my camera to my phone and then uh, airdrop it to the to the kids because they've all, all got phones as well and then do you are you someone so do you like being on your own are you a solid solitary person um i think generally I, a bit of both i mean I, I when i'm traveling i'm rarely on my own really because yeah you know there's always whether i'm traveling with a local guide or a companion and then the crew will come in and out every few weeks or whatever so I'm, I, it's not that I'm really on my own very much when I'm traveling so when I do come back I do quite like to be on my own um yeah. so I you know it's I think it's like anything you need a good balance um and the, you know I, I do enjoy occasionally if I'm gonna have a holiday then I quite quite happily just take myself off for a few days on my on my own and go and sit on a, on a beach and read a book mm, yeah I'm with you on that I mean the people you've met is astonishing from like as you said the Dalai Lama to George Clooney and indigenous tribes but who's who's impressed you the most who's impressed me the most I mean either in the way they dress or the way they present themselves or charisma just someone who really left an instant impression on you I mean I have to say the Dalai Lama was 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 up there because he's just got this incredible aura of serenity and calm and humor more than anything else um He's just always joking and laughing and giggling like a like a sort of little little schoolboy. Um, but it's so infectious, and he makes you mm. feel feel so welcome. And we, I remember just sitting down in in his living room, and he comes in, and there's this whole protocol where you offer him a kata, this sort of scarf, and he just waved it away. He's like, "Oh, don't worry about that," you know, and just gave me a big hug. <laughs> and it's just <laughs> very, very, very welcoming. And, uh, so, so yeah, I think I think. You know, and the simple the simplicity of his, his his attire in many ways is, is symbolic of mm. um, what everything that he stands for. And I, I quite like that. Mm. And have you had a wardrobe malfunction? I've had loads so, of wardrobe. So something where your kit has let you down rather than a well, I can tell you one that's it's quite extreme. Uh, <laughs> and I got in a bit of trouble for this, um, so don't tell anyone. But it was <laughs> I was uh, I, I was at a wedding once in in London, and I was I think I'd um, it was just in my final days of being in the army. Um, so this is going back a while now, but it, it was a military wedding, and I was in my full blues. So it was this you know the sort of fancy dress with your medals and uh what and your, your sort of shiny shiny shoes um and it was in it was in london and i was uh, i was i was on the way home and i was dropping off a friend in south london in lambeth in a taxi and i got out of the taxi a friend had disappeared and then i turned around the taxi was already driving off and so i was like oh i mean i'm near the patmore estate now the patmore estate is not the place you want to be hanging <laughs> no. around 
at three o'clock in the morning, particularly not wearing what I was wearing. But yeah. there I was, and so I was like, "Oh, and I had for the one thing, I had a sword because you have your military sword. It's my Sandhurst <laughs> sword." So I was like running down trying to chase this taxi, but my sword was slapping against the side of my leg, um, and so I wasn't. So I had to like. So I thought, "Oh, it'd be great! I'll just pull my sword out so it doesn't slap against my leg." So as I was running down the road with my with my sword out trying to chase down this taxi. Um, it just so happened that um, a police on response van was driving past at the same time. So you can imagine the scene, can't you? These coppers just sort of screeched in front of me, lights, you know, gun, guns out. And I was like, oh, dear. Luckily, they were all ex-military themselves and they were all pissing themselves laughing. They were like, get in, sir. <laughs> so, um, you know, they were like, we can't have you running around this Patmore estate with a sword, which is understandable. Um, so anyway, they gave me, they dropped me off at home. <laughs> so what's next for you that you can tell us about? Oh, there's lots on the horizon. Um, I'm in the middle of filming a new um, Channel 4 series, actually, at the moment. So that will be hopefully coming out very soon. You're in the of... middle of filming it now, so that can't be... It's not yours. one expedition, that's all I can say. It's sort of a, it's a series of different things, yeah. Slightly okay. different to some of the stuff I've done before, but um, yeah hopefully a worthwhile um, theme behind it all. So, yeah. yeah. And then what, what would you say is, because the world is getting smaller and smaller, where would you say the last frontier is, apart from our own minds? Well, <laughs> I, say, I think, um, look, I, I think it kind of, it, it, it's, it's that interface between our minds and uh and the, the world's wild places of which the indigenous communities of, of the world are very much the guardians and the gatekeepers. So I think, you know, those are the places we should be focusing on to protect. And uh, rather than just looking at it from a tourism perspective, it's like, what can we all do to, to help preserve um, the wild places of the world and places like the Amazon mm. and so on. So that's kind of been the focus of, of my work in, in the last couple of years. And I think we'll probably continue to, to do so yeah but is there anywhere in the world that hasn't really been discovered um depends on what you mean i mean extent well extensively traveled through there's that, that i mean there's definitely parts of papua new guinea that 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 um that are very very rarely visited and and again parts of the amazon that that, that are still very much off the off most people's routes um yeah but it comes in waves doesn't it i mean you have to see look at the news and see how well, disasters can strike and suddenly a place is off the, is, yeah. you, know, you can't even go there for 10 years. So um, that's kind of the world we live in. A friend of mine called Rosie Clayton, who was one of the first, I think she was the first woman to walk to, unaided, to cross Antarctica to the South Pole. And she was telling me about this desert in China. Okay. Um, the Taklamakan desert, perhaps? Could be. And it's like, it's it's so arduous, so no one's ever walked across it. Of course you would know. Yeah, that must be it. That must, well, that must be hell walking across Well, desert. I'm sure it is, if you, if you can even get into China these days. Yeah. Okay, so your birthday suit um, is the one thing that you love wearing. So you come back, you're covered in sand, you look like shit. And then is there something you put on, you think, okay... I'm back. Here we go. Oh, um, I'm a bit of a lazy dresser in, in London, to be honest. But um, <clears throat> I think if it's a special occasion, I do quite. A, I mean, I've got a, I've got an excellent sort of uh, collection of fancy dress items around the world. I mean, I had my 40th Amazing. birthday last um, last year, and uh, it, we had a sort of uh, slightly mad theme of just sort of whatever you can drag out from your travel chest. And so uh, I, I've got some very shiny things from Kashmir and the like and I've got some very nice Bhutanese dancing shoes. Have you been to have you travelled extensively through Bhutan? I've been once, yeah, yeah. I've only been yeah. once. I spent a couple of weeks yeah. there. It was beautiful. Yeah. So Leveson, if you weren't kind of scampering all mm. over the world, what would you be doing? Because I uh, I heard somewhere that you were opening um, a place in America somewhere. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, no, I have actually. So this was my slightly un unhinged lockdown COVID project. Was um, I I was out in the states a couple of years ago and uh, did a bit of a road trip around the American Southwest and just fell in love with Colorado. And there's a, mm. a little known national park there called the Great Sand Dunes, uh, which is okay. exactly what it 
It says on the I'm tin. I'm literally writing that down. No, no, Great Sand Dunes National Park. And it okay. is, it's got some of the highest sand dunes in the world. It's got the highest sand dunes in the Western Hemisphere. It's like a mini desert. In Colorado. In Colorado, buffered up against the Rocky Mountains. It looks like the Sahara. Honestly, it's beautiful. And you've got every environment. You've got sand dunes, snow-capped mountains, um, pine forests, free-roaming bison, elk, all that stuff, all in one place. And it's magical. Amazing. So, um I decided I, I needed to sort of spend more time here. So I got a bunch of friends and we, we bought a patch of desert. So I've got 320 acres of pristine high altitude desert right next to a national park. Um, and I'm sort of setting up a, a luxury sort of almost African style safari camp um, for people to stay in for groups. So if you've got a bunch of friends and you want to come and do some stargazing or photography or some yoga or whatever it is you want to do, you can come and stay in my little camp out there. Sounds amazing. Yeah. Okay, so, and then your book yes. is out now, isn't it? And that is Escape from Kabul, a really fascinating read and something we should all be informed about. Thank you so much. All right, Levison. Well, I've banged on, you've banged on for nearly an hour now, so I think it's time for <laughs> us to say goodbye and, and so much luck with your book and with Colorado and your next adventure. Thank you, Susanna. Cheers. Ah, oh, thanks, Leveson. What an impressive and talented guy and so bloody brave. Loved him. Speaking of impressive and talented, this is Ondas by Duo.
Amazing. You can buy Duo's new album, Destino, by going to duoguitarmusic.com and find the band on their socials at Duo Guitar Music. And you can find Leveson at levisonwood.com, at levison.wood on Insta, Leveson Wood on Twitter, Leveson Wood Official on Facebook, and of course, get his new book, Escape from Kabul, at all good bookshops. Finally, you can find us at MyWardMal on our socials, on our website at MyWardMal.com, and of course, subscribe and rate and review us on your chosen podcast platform. That's it. Thanks so much again to Leveson, to Duo, and of course, to you guys for listening. Catch up soon. Until then, my wardrobe is officially closed. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.